Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, David. Hello, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Well, it's the week of the SG50, Singapore 50th birthday. So this is a long weekend for me. How about ah, you? For me, it is uh, another week in Japan. Actually, there's some holidays going on over here too. A lot of people are taking time off to visit their families as part of annual summer break. And also, I think we just came back from Rice Conference. I think we have a good time over there. Yeah, it was so great to actually meet you in person. Yes, and we also meet a lot of our common friends as well during the <laughs> yes, conference. We what, what do you find most memorable about that conference? For me, you know, I'm a content guy. I really enjoyed the main stage. There are some folks there who I had not heard speak before. Thought the subject of today's conversation, Nikesh Aurora, I thought he gave a really nice talk. And also it was fun to see Jenny Lee come. And like afterwards in the press area, uh, she ended up doing like this little roundtable discussion. I don't know if they were reporters or just Jenny Lee fans, but... I think for a good like half hour, 45 minutes, she was just kind of holding court and like just giving wisdom to uh, a bunch of people who were interested in investments in China. That was a really cool thing to see. Yes, and she has also been very helpful to a lot of people who approach her as well. And any other interesting personalities you have met? I met a cool guy during one of the night events. So you know how they have a bunch of places where you can go out and drink. So I, I was out at one of them and I met this guy. He said he was from Nepal. He is now doing a startup in India. And the startup is about bringing surfer and skater culture to India. So he used the example of Quicksilver, which is a surfer skater, like goods and apparel uh, company in the States as an example. And he's bringing that to India. He said that there's too many people who think India is just cricket. And there's a lot more sort of sports fans out there. And he's doing his part to, to make the surfers and the skaters have their voice known. That's cool. So we are coming back to the subject of today, which is something that we discussed during the RISE conference. We want to talk about one company today, and that is... SoftBank. Yes, the SoftBank Group. They started in 1981. Present market capitalization, I think the number I got at the moment with... Basically, some exchange is about $73 billion. It is a multinational telecommunications and internet corporation with operations in broadband, fixed-line communications, e-commerce, investments in internet and consumer technology services, finance, media, and marketing, and other businesses. I mean, from your perspective in Japan, how do you see SoftBank as a corporation? I think it's definitely one of the most respected tech corporations out there. As you said, at this point, the record does kind of speak for itself. It's been around for decades, and they've built up one of the strongest businesses out there. For perspective, if you compare them to, say, a Japanese unicorn, and like there are some strong unicorns. You have Rockton, you have DNA, you have Gree, Mixie. There, there's a bunch of strong folks out there. But the top one, which is Rockton, they have, as of today, according to, to Google, they have a market cap of 2.79 trillion uh, yen, which translates to about 22 billion uh, USD. You know, that's and, and that's Japan's strongest unicorn. So SoftBank definitely has amassed a, a considerable amount of wealth. And I think a lot of people like it, to be fair. There are some people who still say that their coverage could be a little bit better in terms of cell phone service. And they probably be remembered to be the first people to bring the iPhone into Japan and subsequently crushed 
KDDI and NTD Docomo's hold on phones? I'll say that, yes, they did bring the iPhone over. And that is one of the reasons why I myself am a longtime SoftBank user. So they brought the iPhone over. I, I bought one and I've been with SoftBank ever since. Although they did kind of show that, it, that you can have a successful product without the Japan localized phones, I think we do have to point out that KDDI and Docomo are actually still quite strong. Both of them have market caps that actually exceed SoftBank's. Docomo, which is kind of shorthand for anywhere uh, in Japanese, if you translate from the Japanese, uh, they have a market cap of approximately 11.4 trillion, which is about, so like that's a pretty big leap from SoftBank's 8.3 trillion. KDDI is number two, right, still in Japan? That's correct. KDDI is holding steady at 8.9. If you round up, it'd be like a 9.0 trillion. So the way that SoftBank positions itself is they would hear those numbers and say, okay, fine, whatever. Yeah, but we're getting better. Let's talk about the real issue, which is that both Docomo and KDDI are domestic companies. We are a global company. And if you look at the total number of customers served and from both US and Japan, you know, US, they have uh, the acquisition of Sprint then we are actually a much larger telco provider. And so that's where SoftBank gets interesting. They're not, they've never really been content to be just like everyone else. And that difference and that difference in philosophy is starting to pay more and more dividends uh, as we go forward. And of course, when talking about SoftBank, you cannot miss this name, Masayoshi-san, the founder and CEO of SoftBank and the current chairman on the board. And he's a personality. I mean, he went on to recode during the code conference, talk about how he convinced Steve Jobs to give him the first rights to launch the iPhone in Japan. He was born in Korea and then went to Japan. And also he has just hired Nikesh Arara, who we all saw on the RISE conference. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the organizational structure of SoftBank. Other than these two well-known personalities, what have you been observing about them? Sure. So with SoftBank, I think there's kind of one thing that really sticks out, and that starts at the top. Uh, Sonsan is very much a an independent thinker, and you see that in the makeup of his executive board. So most Japanese companies are, are known for having terrible corporate governance. They're known for just kind of elevating their friends, essentially, to key positions on board of directors. And that's one of the reasons why we see a certain accounting scandals, or why there isn't always like a critical mass. We don't always reach the critical mass needed to really enact innovation in a company. But if you look at SoftBank's board of directors, it's of course got, you know, a a number of SoftBank longtime employees, but you have Nikesh, you also have Jack Ma. Then you even have Tadashi Yanai, who's the founder and CEO of Fast Retailing, which is the Uniqlo company. You also have Mark Schwartz, who is the chairman of Asia Pacific for Goldman Sachs. Like these are, in baseball terms, this is kind of like the 1927 Yankees. This is a murderer's row of really, really impressive, storied individuals. So, in terms of the way that they're structured, I'd have to say that he's done an excellent job of bringing a lot of different voices into the room, and so that I think has helped them stay fresh as a company. Now, at the lower level, this is purely anecdotal, so it has to be taken with a grain of salt. But at the uh, more of like the the troops level, I have heard that it's a very results driven company. There's kind of a little bit of pressure to really hit your targets. And a lot of people work very, very hard to achieve the vision that uh, Sunsan has. There is something very interesting happening in SoftBank, and that is Nikesh Arora. Yes. He was formerly the chief commercial officer from Google. 
I think he's number four, number five after the founders. What's yeah, the maybe si- a chief business officer, I think. Correct. What's the significance of bringing someone like him external into a Japanese corporation? And does that also give us some insight because he's been appointed as a potential successor to Sunsan? This was a move that surprised a lot of people. Going back to my earlier comment about how oftentimes Japanese companies will stay very close to their friends or Japanese founders will stay very close to their friends. Bringing in a, a relative outsider like Nikesh is really surprising. Obviously, he doesn't speak uh, Japanese, at least not yet. Or certainly not to my knowledge. He has a wealth of experience based you know, on a global scale, so he, he's a good fit in that sense. But this means that all the other lieutenants, all the other senior executives who were vying for this chance now have to completely rethink what's going on. It's basically rewriting uh, SoftBank's own Game of Thrones. So it's a, it's a very big move. It's a bold move. And it's obviously still early, but... These are the sorts of things that give a company like SoftBank a much better chance of surviving and thriving for a long time to come. Uh, basically, I think Sonsan is saying, you know what, I need someone who has the true global vision, and I'm going to pick Nikesh. Uh, one last thing I want to mention is that one of the reasons why this was surprising is that Sonsan has been searching for a successor, and he's been very public about that. There's actually a special program that SoftBank sponsors which anyone with like the appropriate work experience can apply to can be Japanese or non-Japanese. And it's kind of like a, a filtering system. You take courses, you do projects, and you'll get assessed for your ability to potentially succeed Sonsan. And so I think what was partially interesting is that I think to the best of anyone's knowledge, Nikesh wasn't in this program. So there's a little bit of irony or it's a little bit tough for some of the people who were maybe busting, <laughs> busting their asses away in this program for a couple of years that now they're definitely not going to get that chance. I have also an interesting anecdote. Share with me somebody formerly from Google. Mm-hmm. And he told me that Nikesh is a person who speaks to his mind very openly. He's not the kind that actually very political and he's kind of like, you know, he calls things as it is. Probably that might also be a very interesting fit because you know in asian hierarchical system usually the big boss doesn't tolerate other viewpoints so having someone as outspoken and as clear as that also signal a kind of shift in terms of a japanese corporation as well yeah i think the effect that nikesh has on not only softbank's bottom line but also its culture is going to be one of the great subplots in Mm. Japanese business news for the next good 5-10 years. So before I moved on, is there any insight you have in terms of SoftBank's culture and the way they execute so far? Again, this is anecdotal, but it seems to be a very results-driven company. I don't know that there's a ton of room for a lot of... Experimentation? Yeah, but to, to be honest, like this is really... It's just anecdotal, and so I don't feel so confident saying like it's all one way or all the other. Different people have different experiences. I say that because I came from a, a large Japanese corporation. And I know for beyond the fact that people definitely have different experiences depending on which department they're in. And if people are complaining, (laughs) there's a chance that maybe they got stuck with one of the less ideal departments. I see. But this is where we come to the really the meat of today's conversation. We want to talk about the businesses of SoftBank and also its Q1 earnings in 2015. I'm going to put up two numbers. Is the Net sales revenue, which went from 1.9 in trillion to 2.1 trillion yen, is about a 10% year-on-year growth. 
and they have kind of uh, earnings before tax, which is 319.4 billion last year yen to this year, which is 343 billion yen, which is a 8% for a year on year growth. I mean, look at global averages. We're looking at something like usually 2 to 3% year on year growth. I think the first thing is let's just have some general observations from this Q1. What is so interesting about this quarter as compared to previous quarters? I think in this quarter, we saw some of their bigger concrete moves. Like we've heard about Pepper for a long time. Finally, Pepper was sold. They've been talking about turning around, turning around Sprint for a while. And now it seems like they got a little bit of traction there. Uh, and then obviously the the many deals they've done. You and I were talking before. They're mostly thanks to the Alibaba deal, but the valuation of their investments year over year just skyrocketed. I think it's just like a combination of their businesses coming together. Another thing, I think one of the biggest news they made was finally consolidating the multiple telcos underneath them. So sometimes people think of SoftBank as a monolithic uh, telco. You go in, you get internet, you get phone. The reality is, is that that only just became the reality. Up until this quarter, and when I saw this press release, I was so happy because it was really hard for me to track personally. Up until this quarter, they had something like four or five different companies that were all providing services. They had SoftBank Mobile, SoftBank BB, which was for internet, SoftBank Telecom, and then they had Yahoo Mobile. So finally, they all kind of came together as SoftBank Corporation. So I think that's also going to be a, a pretty big move because now it means that they can be guided under one hand. Their costs and their revenue strategies can all be unified. And I think that's going to have a pretty good impact for their domestic bottom line. In fact, I think in their domestic telecommunications, they had an increase in product sales as well. I think most of the other, the other things like investments and Yahoo Japan, it stays flat. And also a little bit coming from Sprint itself. I, I thought what came out from the very first slide was they're committed to the Sprint turnaround, which yeah, I thought that, was very interesting. That is the message of this report. And I think it's I think they have to have that sort of message because even if you look at SoftBank, even if you're a diehard SoftBank otaku, it's very clear that Sprint is their toughest asset. Everything else looks pretty rosy or at least pretty solid. But Sprint, it's the number three player in the States. The bid to merge that with uh, T-Mobile fell apart. So they have to come out strong and say, we believe in Sprint. We're going to turn Sprint around. And look, it's already starting uh, to happen a little bit. And I think what they decided to do was actually very simple. They wanted to basically do a large operating cost reduction. Um, this is very common in corporate turnarounds, uh, what we call OPEX reduction. Mm. So what they actually did in this case, I probably think is probably they tried to make Sprint more efficient. Maybe they outsource away some of the operations that are not core to the business. But I thought one of the interesting talking points was they actually maximize the capex efficiency now what capex really means is that you make investments to improve your infrastructure and product when once you commission those systems you actually have depreciation costs coming in which is very interesting from softbank's approach to sprint although it's very simple but it's actually very very difficult to pull off and i thought it was quite interesting that they actually showed how they got the OPEX reduction down by 20% in one of the graphs they showed using SoftBank Mobile as an example. Yeah, they definitely have the track record. This is a technique which I, I agree with you, it makes sense. I guess I have to throw a little bit of cold water on it mm. and say that they're not going to be the only telecom that does this. I just saw a report from when I was doing research for, for our chat, I saw a report from the Wall Street Journal that said AT&T, this is from 2014, mm. is kind of looking into the same strategy. 
And HET is already bigger than Software Sprint in, in the States. And not to mention, they also have T-Mobile now gaining to come to become the number three in the mobile. If you look at the subscribers growth, there was a very recent interesting exchange between the two CEOs of Sprint and T-Mobile. Sprint CEO is Marcelo and the like, they were having this tweet battle on Twitter. Were they? I yes. didn't hear about that. Yeah, what yeah. happened? And what happened was they actually, there was this graph about mobile subscribers where Sprint is just steadily growing and T-Mobile just went up and reaching almost number three. Wow. Actually, the Sprint CEO said, yes, I acknowledge that. <laughs> I'll, be, sorry, I'll be improving the company. Yeah, it's definitely going to be definitely going to be a battle. Because I think, at least judging by their recent actions, T-Mobile is, is open to, to an acquisition. If they can hit that number three spot, then they start to have a lot of interesting options. They can keep going or they're now even more appealing as a potential acquisition for someone else. Sprint itself is a very, very big line item. I'm, I'm presuming that we're going to talk about this a lot. In fact, the way when Masayoshi-san talked talk to Charlie Rose, he was talking about Sprint as a disruptor to the traditional two mobile players in the US. Yeah, that's certainly the approach that he took with KDDI and Docomo, uh, using the example that you gave yourself with bringing in uh, the iPhone. That was a way that he tried to disrupt their systems. I kind of mm -hmm. wonder how would they be able to do that in the US because AT&T and Verizon are pretty large. They're pretty large. And also some of the places that you would try to maybe cut a corner, for instance, you mentioned it was the CapEx. That's the idea of investing in future infrastructure is a little bit of a thorny issue in the States. So when there was that big net neutrality debate back, I think it was last year, 2014, one of the issues that the telcos were saying is that they shouldn't have to bear the burden of developing new systems when you have a whole lot of other people who are kind of taking advantage of their provision of the service. So like everyone should kind of pull their weight. So you actually have the telcos who are somewhat incentivized to sit on their thumbs a little bit, whether or not SoftBank joins them or not, that's something that really bears watching. So I think that the way that they position themselves as a service provider, as a lobbyist in their life in the States is going to be a really careful maze to, to navigate. I think that's also partially the reason why he got Nikesh Aurora to be on board as well given that he understands the U.S. businesses in a better way than shopping has came in from an outside point of view as well. Coming to the second part of the conversation, I'm interested in talking about robotics. I see it as kind of SoftBank's legacy or the product that would define them. Is the robot Pepper. Tell me a little bit about Pepper. So Pepper is, I think, one of the more interesting gambles that a company has taken in recent years. Uh, with Pepper you definitely have a very high-end system. I've spoken with a number of Pepper engineers, people who were working on the project back when it was a, a multiple-year NDA deal. These are brilliant people, like world-class talents. What they're working on in terms of the emotional intelligence of Pepper is really impressive. I guess I have a bit of a hesitancy to, to crown it as the second coming of, of, say, like the iPhone, because the precise utility of it, I think, is still in the being proven stage. So when we think about robotics that can replace workers in factories, there's already a strong record of that working and being effective. When we think about robotics that can supplement a human ability, there's, for instance, a company in Japan called Cyberdyne that makes exoskeletons. That, again, is something that has a, a pretty good record of utility. And then when we think about the moonshots, like the stuff that's going on in science labs in the States, th those are things which are basically behaving like that you can program a robot to behave and jump and hold balance 
like a real animal. Those are all things that I don't think Pepper can quite do yet. It can't move like a real animal. It, like, it can't move like a, a human yet. And also for what it's trying to perform, it's trying to supplement or maybe even replace a human worker. And at least in my limited interactions with it, like in the store, I walk away feeling like not just yet. So I think that it's something which, and this is something that might get me some flack on Twitter for, but I think that right now it's kind of like an Apple watch <laughs> in the sense that everyone knows that, yes, we want to find like a new way of interfacing with the app, with the mobile world and making it smaller, making it a bit more intimate is the direction that we're going to. But I think there's a, a legitimate question of saying, is the wrist really the right way of doing it? Or are we actually just waiting for minority style little holograms in front of us? Mm. Uh, and so the Apple Watch is like a great step in the future direction. It's an amazing technology. Whether or not it is the step that we will remember as the most amazing thing that ever happened, I think that is still, the jury's still out. And I kind of see Pepper being the same way. I think that it's an amazing step in the right direction. And if you think about sci-fi movies like The Robot and Frank, which if you haven't seen, I highly recommend, mm -hmm. that's basically about a personal service robot that has basically perfect mobility so it can move around no problem. It can read human emotions. It can interact with the human, no problem. It can, it can act as a household assistant, as a, a helper for the elderly or in the infirm. It can be a companion. It can be a cook. It can be a gardener. These are all with all about being very gentle and not at all scary or there's no like threat that robots are going to take over the world because you have this little thing in your home. Like that to me is the future of Pepper. And if it gets there, then holy cow, that's awesome. And yes, SoftBank was there first and they're maybe on the inside track to hit it. But at this current inter iteration, I think it's a lot of excitement. But until I see it more in the wild, uh, I'm not entirely convinced of its utility. You know, this is the part that I felt very bad for the Japanese. They have actually pioneered a lot of innovations. But what happens was that it's always a US company that took it and then show it back to them in the other direction. I mean, if you look at mobile, for example, I mean, KDDI and NDD Docomo has pioneered so much things about the mobile phone, the interface and the usage. And all it takes was Apple just taking some parts of what they are doing and just throw it back at them as an iPhone and became the leading dominant. So it is always, it, I mean, this has historically happened many times for Japan. I thought what was interesting about this robotics and Pepper, for example, was that Sopeng also took the approach of joining forces with Alibaba and Foxconn. I think that they know that they are not strong in everything and they're actually getting Foxconn and Alibaba to come in to find actual usage. I think there's a lot of usage of robotics in the logistics sector and Foxconn being the best manufacturer in the world, they are able to do this at scale. I think this is going to be very interesting because I saw 1,000 units of pepper sold within a minute. I think they cost 2,000 US dollars. So don't you think that SoftBank have a chance in becoming the Apple in robotics? Yeah, I think the, the flash sale is a, a sales or a marketing strategy. I think they sold the appropriate, I think they picked the appropriate number to sell quickly. And then I, I think the, the larger point is something you mentioned earlier about the Alibaba and Foxconn deal. I think that that sort of partnership points to the fact that SoftBank maybe understands that this is a, not maybe, definitely understands that this is a, a long-term play. And so they're positioning themselves to take advantage of that long into the future. So I, I think that when you have a partnership with one of 
uh, or if not the preeminent manufacturer in China, and certainly a product like pepper, I think that sends a clear signal that we're here, we're going to produce at scale, and people are going to really get to know pepper all around the world. I think it's interesting because I've heard people in Southeast Asia, because SoftBank is actually going to promote pepper in this market. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to look to sell a certain number of units so to hit the market. I mean, I see myself as definitely one of those early adopters. I don't know whether you are going to be one of the early adopters to Pepper. I, I would be happy to try out a trial version. <laughs> <laughs> For Southeast Asia, I think, yes, yeah, some markets, I guess, make sense. Hong Kong, Singapore. But I think for other markets, it's, it's kind of becoming like a, say, a gold Apple Watch which obviously people buy. <laughs> they bought a whole ton of them in China. But if you're looking at other areas of Southeast Asia, I think Pepper becomes one of those things where, yeah, it's a great technology, but is it really helping or necessary for the, the country that you're, you're selling it in? How many people are really going to buy it in other Southeast Asia Asian nations? And is the cost high enough that it justifies targeting like those top percenters of, of those local economies. So do you think that eventually SoftBank will do what the other Japanese companies cannot to dominate the robotics market? Like the way Sony dominated the world with the Walkman? Well, I think they're certainly marching out very strongly right now. Again, I think we need to differentiate the robotics market because there's manufacturing robots, then there's uh, human augmentation robots or, or robotics, and then there is like the other which is something like Pepper. So I think maybe for that particular vertical, they can do it. Certainly, there's some interesting other ideas out there, but they are all much, I guess, I'd say poor, poorer versions of Pepper. There's definitely other robots that try to have emotional intelligence, other robots that try to create some sort of human-to-machine interaction or try to better connect humans to humans. Those are quite interesting. And when you see them, you think, wow, whoever made this, you know, via like a, a Kickstarter or whatever, or out of has like a graduate student with a grant from a university, like this person's brilliant. But then you see what SoftBank did. SoftBank got a whole bunch of brilliant robotics doctors. They got a whole mess of production ability. And they're definitely racing out ahead in that particular vertical. I thought something to just kind of close the conversation is I think they also did a deal with Mizuho, which is a bank, right? together yeah, with yeah. SoftBank to basically have the Pepper robot to entertain customers and provide useful information. Can you just tell me what Mizuho is? Yeah, so Mizuho is it's best known as a, a banking conglomerate. Like, say, a Mitsubishi, they have multiple businesses across the financial world. <laughs> That's an awkward phrase. They have multiple uh, financial services businesses. They are definitely one of the most popular banking institutions in Japan. So Pepper is probably going to be used as a an aid in japan i'm not sure how it works in singapore but in japan a lot of times when you walk into a banking institution or a post office there's almost always uh, a worker who will come to you and say hey can i help you and then you say oh well i'm gonna work i'm trying to do x y or z and they'll say oh for that you need form a or for that you need form b go to window five pepper is probably going to take that sort of a support role and in which case you know that that'll be a huge help because sometimes those banks get pretty busy so it'll be good to have another quote-unquote staff on hand to to help you out uh, they're doing a similar thing with i think it was nescafe the company that makes those little mini coffee capsules that already started and so mizuho i think represents kind of a, a level up nescafe they're centered in trendy harajuku uh, and so you definitely see it in in if you're walking around, but that brand recognition is kind of pales in comparison to Mizuho. Mizuho is like, oh, 
these are the big boys. This is like old established Japanese corporation. It's a it's a good partnership from that perspective. Absolutely. I thought it was tongue in cheek in their earnings report. They also put Pepper for Business uh, monthly wage of fifty five thousand yen. Yeah. Yep. That's uh. Yeah. That averages out to about I guess like 475 USD. I think that's the sort of thing where they're trying to see like where, where it can move forward faster because I think they are have already been testing and iterating Pepper for business because they already have Peppers doing that sort of thing in SoftBank stores. So actually in terms of like market readiness, it wouldn't surprise me if Pepper for business uh, in some ways hits user expectation better than the personal Pepper does. I think Pepper... We are going to basically continue at some point again about their success or failure. And of course, I think Pepper also is part of the solutions to solve uh, Japan's declining population because I think they're going to become a very geriatric-centric nation at some point in time. But getting into the most interesting part of it is you know, about SoftBank is the venture capital and private equity piece of their business. I mean... They are most well known for investing in Alibaba. They invested, I think it was something about US 300 over million and they now got a stake of 34%, which is now worth about US 58 billion. I mean, you could see it in the earnings report, right? How much yeah. the re-evaluation of the company is coming from the Alibaba stake. Yeah, so, they're doing well. Yeah, they're doing very well. I mean, they also own one of the biggest games, I think Clash of Clans by Supercell and yep. Gung Ho as well, Puzzle and yep. Dragons. So here's the interesting thing. I'm going to put some data in it first. So they did US 1 billion in Kupang in Korea, 627 million in Snapdeal, 600 million in DD Kwaidi, 250 million in Grab Taxi, 210 in Ola Caps, 90 million in Housing, 100 million in Tokopedia, and 100 million in Oyo Rooms. Now, bear in mind that this is not the actual number they invested. They probably have invested part of those numbers because it's aggregated together with the other investors like Tiger Global and Sokoa Capital who are part of that deal. Looking at their portfolio strategy, what are your thoughts? Do you see them like what I think I usually like to think of SoftBank like the Berkshire Hathaway for technology investments because I know Warren Buffett hates tech. <laughs> so are they yeah i think that certainly from a, a tech media perspective softbank keeps supplying very exciting news it allows for tons of digital ink to be spilled speculating what it all means but it, it's it's kind of clear they're doing some major investments in some very key categories for asia e-commerce coupon snap deal alibaba like you mentioned uh, transports last logistics, uh, DD Quadi, Grab Taxi, Ola Cabs, also f with uh, e-commerce Tokopedia over in Indonesia. Like these are kind of like the the pillars of many tech deals and a lot of tech growth in Greater Asia and definitely in Southeast Asia. So, one of the most telling parts of their earnings slide, I thought, was when they just kind of listed up all their investments. In some ways, it was just saying like, yep, we're pretty good. Uh, and so it, it points out how you have, it shows first the, the insane growth of gross merchandise volume for Alibaba, for Snapdeal and, and Coupon. This is the part that I think is most interesting, market share for their uh, taxi services. Ola, they claim, is 85%. Uh, Grab Taxi, they're saying, has increased 7.4 times for quarterly bookings year over year. And then uh, Quadi... Quadi Taxi and Didi Taxi also have had insane growth. There was a report out the other day that some close China observers think might be a little bit questionable, 
but it was saying that they have just overwhelming market share, like over 90% market share compared to say Uber, which is just like a bit player. Yeah, it's the, in some ways you kind of can almost see the writing on the wall. If you have one common investor who is putting in a lot of money into all these very successful companies that all have basically the same business model. And it's not that SoftBank is afraid to try and take a majority share. If you look at a U.S. deal they made with Legendary Entertainment, Legendary Entertainment, in case uh, some of your viewers don't know, they're responsible for uh, hits like the Hangover series, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, the new Superman movies. Next to Marvel in Hollywood, they are the closest thing to a money printing machine. And in Hollywood, that never happens. And, And they've been doing it with a variety of IP. Marvel has one IP, and that is the Marvel Universe. Legendary is hopping genres, it's taking comic books, it's taking live action, it's taking original content, and it's almost every movie is a giant hit. So when SoftBank did that deal, which I think they was for $250 million, and if I remember correctly, that was all SoftBank money, they did that deal with a provision that said at a time when the uh, CEO, Thomas Toll, decides to sell Legendary Entertainment, SoftBank gets first bid on the acquisition. Uh, And then you see a similar pattern over in Asia. If you talk about housing.com, they joined one of housing's large rounds. And as as we've been seeing in the news recently with the resignation of the CEO, and now it just came out today that they're restructuring like 600 employees are going to lose their jobs. Housing is now essentially run by SoftBank. So they have majority share and all the senior executives report to SoftBank. It it wouldn't surprise me at all to see them uh, continuing to uh, increase their share in some of these companies and maybe really nudge forward some some cross-border synergies. You know what would happen? There is a very high chance that they could even merge Didi, Quidi, Grab Taxi, and Ola Caps all into one if they yeah. were to take on Uber. I mean, Uber is raising so much money. Yeah, but precisely. It's kind of like they're hedging against it and they kind of have this perception that the localization will beat the global competitor. I mean, in today's world, do you see that actually happen? Well, I think that if your local if your local option is smart and works hard and is basically a well-run business, it definitely is possible. I think that just using Japan as a case study, we see so many Western firms come over here and a large number of them really, really struggle. Maybe finally in, say, late year two, sometime in year three, they start to get kind of like the, the positive movement forward that they were looking for. But anytime a company goes into a new market, it's basically starting as a startup. You have limited friends, you have limited resources. Now they have to try to somehow figure out how to gain users, gain user trust, get the right partnerships, the whole nine yards. So I think that it's entirely possible for these sorts of local players to fend off a corporate powerhouse, uh, sorry, a global powerhouse uh, like Uber. Uh, And in fact, like so far, the evidence strongly suggests that that's exactly what they're doing. I think you brought up a good point that they invested in legendary pictures in media. I also found out that they also did a joint venture to invest in renewable energy. And it's not just them. They work with India's Bharti Enterprise and Taiwan's Foxconn. And they seem to be everywhere. Like, they have a lot of friends, I think. <laughs> yes. And I think the deal was about renewable energies to generate 100 gigawatts of solar power by 2002, which is actually from today is only 3 gigawatts today. They are actually have BHAG goals or big, hairy, audacious goals for the markets that they invest in. Yeah, I think it's it's a sort of investment that we don't often see, at least not so publicly. I think it, it really is establishing them as this is the company that you want to be aware of if you're going to be working in Asia. 
because now they have major holdings in so many countries, major holdings or major friendships and partnerships in so many countries. Which is why I equated them closer to Berkshire Hathaway, like a conglomerate, but have a very strong investment group that really goes out and do the real big private equity deals on that. But I think the interesting thing is that I think SoftBank has been around for more than um, since 1981, it's about now 40 years, that the impact to the US and Asia market is a lot. I think we should actually talk a little bit about their impact as well. I, of course, we didn't talk about Yahoo Japan, but I'm sure that in a future conversation, we're going to cover that piece as well. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good story in and of itself. That's right. So I think the impact of uh, SoftBank to US and Asia, I think probably the most interesting one, which we talk about a lot, was to bring the iPhone into the Japanese market, bring, breaking the NTD Docomo and KDDI's hole, and even got them eventually end up adopting the iPhone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I thought one of the more interesting things that came out was also they have successfully backed entrepreneurs and joint ventures with companies. I mean, I'm just talking about Alibaba and Yahoo Japan as well, which they did a joint venture with Yahoo. I think Yahoo has, has been thinking about trying to sell that stake in Yahoo Japan back to them. And for all our listeners out there, Yahoo Japan uses Google search. They don't use Bing. <laughs> That you got a the, you got a man on the inside giving that information. I have my sources. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so but it's a known open secret actually. I remember reading it from some journals. What else do you thought would be interesting about them from just successfully backing entrepreneurs and joint ventures with companies? Well, I think that Sonsan definitely has a tradition of wanting to find new, powerful, visionary uh, young leaders. And that's what kind of resulted in the partnerships with Alibaba and Yahoo Japan. Particularly Alibaba, I think, is kind of an illustrative example that this wasn't a case of the all-powerful Jack Ma making a deal with Masayoshi Son. At that time, Alibaba still wasn't but so well-known. In a sense, like, Son-san had uh, a lot more clout. But, you know, he saw something in what uh, who Jack Ma <clears throat> is as a person. He also saw something in what Alibaba could become, and they made the deal. And now... It's very clear that they have a, a, a strong relationship with each other that's lasted years and years and years. And I think that's also somewhat reflected in that successor program. That was also a way of bringing and shining a light for you know potential entrepreneurs or bright minds to find their way to SoftBank. So I think that it's a company that really wants to attract those sorts of brilliant minds, those sorts of free thinkers. And on against that backdrop, that makes the Nikesh signing a little bit less surprising because, as you said, he's known as a, a, a straight shooter, tells you tells you how he sees it. You know, they're not really looking to, they're not going to be inspired by someone who just spouts the company line, who just goes on conventional wisdom. They're looking for that kind of uh, next level leader. Uh, and so I, I think that is one of the interesting features you can see in SoftBank's relationship to entrepreneurs over the years. I kind of didn't add the last part is that there are a couple of successful VCs outside Silicon Valley that are related to SoftBank. So Brad Felt, for all we know, for Foundry and Techstars, was a managing director of SoftBank Venture Capital from 1997 to 2001. And we know Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures. SoftBank was the LP for them when he was the partner in Flatiron partners. So it's actually very interesting that all these now very well-known VCs all had some relationship with SoftBank in the earlier .com boom. Yeah, they definitely, you can never deny their long reach. Any other last thoughts on SoftBank before we close the conversation? 
Gosh, we've talked about so much. We'll, uh... <laughs> well, we, we, we still have the Yahoo Japan part. We will get back to that piece a little bit more some, someday soon. How about that? Yeah. Uh, sounds like a plan. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, well, uh, I have nothing left to say. Okay, Dave, tell my audience, how do they find you? Oh, they can find me on Twitter at slash CorbinDB. Uh, you can also see me on Tech in Asia. I write there occasionally, mostly on Japanese tech scene. You can also definitely catch me in Tokyo on September 8th and 9th. That's a Tuesday, Wednesday for Tech in Asia Tokyo 2015. It's going to be a great two-day conference. Uh, you'll be able to join about 2,000 other delegates. That includes 200 startups sourced from Across Asia, uh, we have a very strong India contingent this year, uh, as well as you know your local homegrown Japanese startups. We'll be joined by a host of investors from both inside outside Japan. We have media partners with almost all the major Japanese uh, organizations. So if you're looking for a little bit of coverage uh, in Japan, this is definitely the place to go. That's before we even talk about the speakers. We have uh, Ben Horowitz coming. We have Om Malik coming. We have uh, Tomoko Namba, the founder of DNA. Uh, we have some of the best investors in Japan, such as one of the co-founders of East Ventures, Taiga Matsuyama. The list goes on and on. Uh, so I highly recommend you check out Tekken Asia Tokyo 2015. And we'd love to see you there. Okay, definitely put one piece on the show notes. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us on our Twitter at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia, or Analyze.Asia. You can find us in iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And please leave a ratings. One star to five star. Any feedback, we are welcome. So Dave, once again, it's great to have you on the show. I'm sure we're going to talk to you again. No, thank you, Bernard. It's always a pleasure.